0: Three. always on the cutting edge drive time welcome back 0829 913 913 that's not an emergency number that's our whatsapp line 0829 913 913. in today's book review we check out brent Mearsman's rattling the cage reflections on democratic south africa Rattling the Cage takes you, the reader, on a tour of South African reality, from Mandela to Marikana to Envy Avarice, uh, burning trains, and more. Uh, Don't worry, it's easy to read, it's accessible, and very well informed. Author Brent Meersman, who's online, is also co-editor of Ground Up, uh, one of the last remaining individual um, and... uh, unbiased uh, media platforms around also independent he's also been the chairman of the press club since 2013 which is forever and in 2020 his memoirs a childhood made up was also published brent meersman welcome to the show uh salams, salams to you um It certainly is a very interesting book, uh, 17 pieces plus minus, and you move around um, in four sections from Fear and Hope, Envy and Avarice, uh, Sadness and Joy, Disgust and Offense, Love and Compassion, etc., etc., etc. What, uh, first of all, gave you the motivation to tackle this book? Because you certainly cover the whole gamut of um, the South African reality.
1: Yes. Uh, well, I've been writing about South Africa for about 20 years uh, or more. And, of course, I've, I've lived through, you know, the 1980s and thought a lot about my country. And I wanted to reevaluate, you know, had I got the story straight? Did I understand what was going on in South Africa? Or had I just absorbed my social bubble? Um, you know, did were these just, uh, you know, opinions and views that I had taken for granted? And to what extent and I think, as I analyzed it, and I think it's very important for, you know, for all South Africans, um, I think we all people should, you know, we should investigate and we should think about the beliefs we hold and why we hold them. Um, and as you mentioned, the, I, I, each section of the book is uh, is headlined with, um, with a pair of emotions like, you know, like sadness and joy or, or, or fear and hope. And I think that the way we understand our country is to a large extent uh, informed by our experience of it, the extent to which we have done well or not so well, the extent to which we feel included or not included. And I wanted to put those uppermost in my readers' minds and and keep that emotional argument there um, for how we understand uh, South Africa.
0: No, absolutely. What I'm going to do to you, um, <clears throat> you start off by talking about Mandela's funeral. I'm just going to read out a few lines that you write about Mandela, because I think it kind of um, places us immediately in terms of what you're trying to do. Mandela, the man who now stands accused of selling out, quote-unquote, is the same man who, together with the Youth League, ousted the old liberal thinking and sclerotic leadership of the ANC in 1949 who launched the armed struggle by founding Mkhomte Isiswi, whom the ANC disciplined for his famous We Are Closing a Chapter on this question of a non-violence policy interview in 1961, who refused to come to any compromise with the prosecution during the Rivonia trial and who was prepared to hang. Uh, it's interesting you've managed to get all of that together in just, uh, in fact, half a paragraph, but I'm sure you'll agree um, this is exactly what what you were trying to tell me previously. Is that there are just so many different South African realities?
1: Mm. Yes, you know. So you know, you look at that. Uh, Mandela was a radical, um, and certainly, and he was. A, but he was also a very pragmatic man, and a very and very humanistic in his approach. And he wanted. Um, although he took up the armed struggle, ultimately he wanted a, a peaceful South Africa, and he did everything he possibly could do to achieve that. I mean, I, and, and and of course we can ask questions, and I do ask the question, and I interrogated in the book as to, you know, did Mandela get the the best deal from international and from capital um, that he could have got in 1994, and that that's a significant and interesting question. But this idea that Mandela is a sellout, um, you know, really sticks with me and I've thought about it and I have young born, you know, so-called born free, nobody was born free, uh, who say to me, you know, that, you know, Mandela sold out, he sold us out, that's why we have no jobs, that's why there is no land, Uh, that's why we are in the predicament we are. And and, and I have to say to them that, no, I, I don't think that that's fair and I think... You characterizing it as a sellout, I think that's anger speaking, and I understand that anger, but it's the anger of the emotion to lash out at this sort of father figure um, who hasn't provided uh, a reality that one would want. But certainly, I think I make the argument quite, I hope, con- well, certainly I'm convinced and I would like to see evidence <laughs> you uh, uh, know, ag- against yeah. that, that he really was certainly not a sellout and he did his absolute best. Um, I think the ANC overall fell short in some of the negotiations, but I don't think that it's, you know, the sellout label is just the anger of youth uh, speaking now and people who did not live through that uh, through that period.
0: It's ironic because uh, Mandela was very aware of expectations. I can remember um, uh, covering his first address in the Grand Parade where one of the the lines he said, and it stuck with me, he actually said, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a a basic human being, and I'm not a prophet are the exact words that he used uh, all those years ago.
1: Yes, and he repeated it many times, and he said, "I'm not a saint. I'm, 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 I'm a, I'm a sinner who who keeps on staying, but who tries to do better, who tries not to, you know, who tries to improve themselves." Um, and he didn't want to be painted as this uh, as this lifeless, uh, a lifeless ideal, um, and yeah. You know, and but at the same time, uh, you know, there, there there is an important element in that he did transcend his own party, you know, um, and he did transcend many things. And as I make the point in the book as well, which is quite interesting, is that in the end of the day, um, it was Mandela who made who, who uh, the, the white nation black <laughs> yeah. uh, when we got past 1994, you know. Um, and that's an extraordinary accomplishment um, as well. And he had, you know, Mandela could ask people to do which if Zuma asked or even Ramaphosa, you know, people would not necessarily do them. Um, but, you know, he had that gravitas, and he had that he had that incorruptible faith in him, um, which I think was a huge boon to the country at that time. But there were many, I mean, I had a rough there, there were many, many, many other people, and Kathy, of course, you know, there were many people around him who, who, who supported him, and that, that we were very lucky with that class of, of people that we had at that time, I think.
0: No, absolutely, because if one... Goes through your book and um, it's, there's a lot in it So we're going to have to just jump around quite selectively um, your, 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 your views on Marikana are interesting And when one again steps back and looks at Marikana It's almost like an allegory um, There's just so much in Marikana From um, what happened to the workers Lonman, Ramaphosa, neoliberalism Post colonialism, it really encompasses a tremendous amount, doesn't it? Apart from the tragedy of the massacre.
1: Yes, um, yeah, I think that, yeah. Th- so you asked me earlier what made me write the book, and I have to say that probably Muricano was was mm. one of the anima- most animating factors. It was such a shock. Um, and I said to myself, how is it possible in democratic South Africa with our constitution? How did it happen? And and I'm afraid to say that looking at the reaction in post-Morokana, I fear that we are probably going to have another one down the line. I hate to say it. But I don't see significant changes on the ground in a way that will prevent such a thing happening again. And there's a lot of lip service paid off to it. But for me, it was a microcosm. I mean, if you looked at it, you saw this overpaid management at Marikana with a really callous disregard for the welfare of their employees, even though there were black economic empowerment uh, uh, elements sitting on the board of Marikana, and there were companies there to manage the labor relations that failed. There was a subversion of the unions. we were in collusion with the with the management and then left a vacuum open. There was the militarization of the police that we've had. There was a lack of of, 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 living conditions, you know, the workers live in squalor and still do after Maracana. Um, and then the failure of, of transformation, uh, in, in, in the industry. And then the collusion of, of, of the state with the whole minerals and energy complex, you know, with big capital. And then the opportunism of demagogues like Julius Salema, which pitched up there and, uh, uh, started having a political success, uh, on, on what was the ANC's turf. So all those elements together, I think, really make Marikana an instructive and important um, lesson for us and why we should not shy away from, why we should look, you know, really look it in the eyes and, and also ask ourselves, what have we done since? And I'm afraid, uh, I think we've, you know, the country has done nearly enough since uh, Marikana, even though there was this huge outpouring and there's this annual commemoration Um, On the ground, you know, the Americana miners are still suffering and their widows are still suffering.
0: Absolutely, there's been no um, closure at all, um, and it's interesting, something that we discovered at this radio station, and everybody else did as well, but it came home very profoundly to us, is that the miners at Maracana, their biggest problem was actually debt, they'd become enslaved to the micro lenders, and, and again, that becomes a whole other story, but um, on the face of it, their demands for 12,500 Rand a month were not unreasonable,
1: no, they weren't, and, and certainly some economists. I haven't been able to evaluate, um, you know, as, as I'm not an economist on that level that I can actually evaluate, uh, you know, the actual the figures. Uh, but certainly, it, it has been presented by economists, and I feel quite convincingly. So I mentioned it in the book, and people must to have a look at it for themselves. Um, that there was actually enough, uh, there were sufficient funds um, to to probably give the increases that they were demanding, um, and if not that, it, there was there were billions that were available that were offshore to tax havens um, on islands uh, to the west of, uh, of us, um, where, which itself, those billions, if they'd just been put into infrastructure, would have made a... Huge, such a difference to the to the lives of the workers that perhaps they could have, they could actually uh, have a tolerable life and with some dignity um, exist on their meagre salaries. Um, so the problem is, uh, and also if you look at it elsewhere in the world and look at comparative pay, um, you know people like the the rock drillers uh, at Marikana and many menial workers in South Africa are paid a, a, a pittance, of counterparts um, in a country like Australia or in Europe, would be paid. However, our top management and our CEOs of that are paid almost exactly the same as what CEOs and people earn um, in 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 countries that are that developed. So we really have to look at that. You, uh, the Maracana management was earning on average like two hundred times uh, the wage of the of, of of the lowest paid people at at, at the mine, and that's an enormous differential. Um, so uh, you know, there's all these things that we. We need to look at, and of course, the, you know, you mentioned the debt trap. You know, that also is a legacy of migrant migrant mining labour. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's, it, that's part of the legacy.
0: Uh, you, you mentioned something else in your book, talking about our suburban realities you're right, you cannot have a million rand uh, status vehicle watched over by a legless unemployed man and be proudly South African and declare your country a success. I mean, this is your very own neighborhood.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. I live in, I live in Cliff, you know, right in, in Cape Town. And um, I don't live in a the, in the fancy place, but I suppose <laughs> but it is a pretty good place. Uh, But the location, I've I've just noticed over the years, you know, more and more sports cars. (laughs) It's quite incredible with the economy. And as I mentioned in the book, you know, with, uh, with COVID, uh, because I heard, um, I think it was Stephen Curtis on the SAFM interviews, uh, it was the economic roundup or whatever, and they were talking about how bad the economy was dipping during the lockdown. And he, he had a throwaway line like, oh, well, you know, not many Maseratis being bought right now in this economy. And I thought, no, actually, that's, no, that's not the case. Yeah. Um, in fact, there are as many Maseratis and Porsches being bought if not more uh, right throughout this COVID lockdown. That is how well insulated the rich are in South Africa um, from the realities on the ground. So so the poor are suffering, but the, but the super wealthy um, are quite untouched by all of this um, and, and and really are insulated. So that was the point that I was trying to make around, uh, let's say, Porsche mobility, I think I call it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's so much to discuss. Um, I was hoping we were going to be able to talk about the media. We haven't got time for that. But I'd like to focus in on your observations about uh, uh, Brett Murray's The Spear, and Zuma talking about his experiences on the island um and the Zuma that we see today zuma it's 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 a, it's a tragic story isn't it the story of zuma um right now i mean it's it's something it could have been but simply never was
1: yeah it's it's a difficult one um because i mean i i have met i've met him a few times and i have interacted i can't say that I know him well at all not 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 in the slightest um but certainly, they, they, you know, you, the thing with politicians is that, you know, it's their job to make you like them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I, they're I, very, very effective at that. Um, so one has to be very careful. Um, and yes, it's certainly the man that I met uh, just coming out of Robben Island and before he was, when he was still just the treasurer, I think it was, uh, of uh, of the ANC, um, uh, uh, he, he was a very different man from what emerged as a president uh, in my eyes. And and has subsequently, and also now with this recent behavior around the Sonder Commission, uh, which is is really quite uh, indefensible... Um, and, uh, and, and yes, so I was quite taken by that. But then I've spoken to other comrades and they say, no, no, no you were just fooled because he's always been like that. Um, so there are differences even within people that work quite closely with him. So I'm not quite sure what to say about that. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, not everybody in the liberation movement was uh, was of the same kind of stature as, as Tambo or Susulu or um, Ahmed Katrada or... Uh, or, or Mandela. Um, some of them you know, had other agendas It would appear or looked out for number one always and have continued to do so. Um,
0: yeah. Absolutely. Unfortunately, uh, Brent, we have to leave it there. I think we could have carried on chatting until sunset. But uh, radio <laughs> doesn't allow us to do it. But, uh,
1: well, congratulations on your radio, by the way. It's one, of the, one of the great success stories. Community radio started in 1995, around there, I think, around just after the uh, one of the first given getting the licenses. That's The right, yes. was still doing its job excellent and, and congratulations
0: to you. No, thank you for that and of course um, um, I'm now going to talk about your book Rattling the Cage, Reflections on Democratic South Africa. It's published by Picador. It will be at a bookshelf near you and as I say I, I recommend it's a good read. It is a page turner. It's easy to read. It's accessible and there's just bags and bags of information about South Africa and the state of our country. Brent Mearsman it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Everything of the best with the of the book. Have fun.
1: Drive time
0: 91.3. Always on the